Welcome to Weird Sounds, an audio companion to the Boston Art Book Fair and Boston Center for the Arts. I'm your host, Oliver Mack. And I'm also your host, Randy Hopkins. Oliver and I are the co-founders of the Boston Art Book Fair, which has brought us into contact with an incredible array of artists and creative thinkers. We want to share some of these conversations with you. And that's exactly why we started Weird Sounds, as a podcast to document the ways that people are making art all around us these days. We have so many questions for artists because we love hearing about the ideas and images, inspirations and aspirations behind their practices. And we know you will too. Hi, Weird Sounds. Randy and I are back with our first episode after the recent 2022 edition of the Boston Art Book Fair. We catch up with Emily Eisenberg of Eisenberg Projects, a woman-led creative group that is transforming how our city looks, plays, and lives. Where one may see an unused vacant lot, Emily and her team see the possibility of creating community. Rethinking public spaces with artists, brands, institutions, and government is made easy by Emily and her team. Let's listen in. Hi, Emily. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We are basking in the uh, luxurious afterglow of another successful Boston Art Book Fair. Um, Randy, have you gotten a lot of fan mail? (laughs) I have. Not really. Mostly from the exhibitors. I think everybody had a really good time behind their tables. So, And hopefully uh, people on on the other side of the tables enjoyed it too. Did you have fun, Emily? Oh, we had a great time, but congratulations to you both because we spoke with a lot of the other uh, vendors and the artists that participated and it was just a rave review and people were just so hungry for an event like that in the city. And I feel uh, like it was a wild success. I hope you feel that way. I was a bit disappointed. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I actually I ran into Emily outside of it on Saturday and we had this really long conversation about our paths that led us to where we're at today. And I thought that made that conversation the perfect like end cap for uh, Art Book Fair. Because it's uh, I think both of us came from this this DIY world of uh, organizing cultural events. and But Emily's taken it to this incredible just this next level that I've, I I don't see anybody else doing locally. And it's an interesting story. Well, that's nice to hear. I feel like sometimes I like barking at the moon over here, but you know, yeah, it's really wild to think about. And I think about you all the time because like when I mentioned to people that I know you in my office, they literally are like, no way. <laughs> so Oliver <laughs> has are... star power. No, it's because I owe them money. Well, I think that, you know, um, you've, you've gone worldwide, my friend. Ah, still in Quincy. I'm still over here. Tell me about your relationship. I want to hear a recap of the conversation from outside the uh, book fair because I didn't hear it. I want to hear everything about Emily, too, and why we're talking to her and what she's accomplished, but which is most fun to start with. I think Emily should talk about where where Eisenberg Projects started and like we could pepper in where our, our paths crossed in between there. Yeah. So it's funny because, um, well, one little tidbit, I guess, is like, I feel like I don't even know when we officially met because you've been in the corner of like so many pivotal moments in spaces of my 20s and early 30s. 
So that's like one piece of it. But just to kind of high level, when I first started, I was doing a lot of projects for a lot of different institutions and a different, a lot of different organizations. Cause truthfully, I was just leaning on a lot of my arts connections in Boston to try to figure out how to make a living post like gallery museum life. And one of the first projects that I did was with the children's hospital and we did a pop-up and I asked Oliver if we could host it at fourth wall. And that was kind of probably the first time that we actually like worked on something together. And then, um, you know, being part of the founder, like the group of, of women that started girls rock camp, um, since Oliver and I had already started kind of, we had gotten to know each other in a different way. We, we did these really crazy, like JP versus Somerville fundraising dance offs at fourth wall too, like a crazy cast of DJs and like just all sorts of fun stuff. But yeah, just to answer the bigger question. I mean, it's funny to tell both of you my background because I feel like you both know, but you know, I came out of like contemporary art and kind of the sort of traditional models and saw an opportunity to find new models for creative practice and the creative economy and trying to figure out how to create intersection and benefit while getting a seat at the table. So um, that was sort of the impetus for me wanting to start something like IP. At the time, I didn't really know what that meant. I just knew that I was trying to figure out how to make a living and also think about ways to create more opportunities outside of the traditional lens of like arts practice to drive dollars and creativity into kind of the future of cities and how things are thought out and what are the role in arts and culture that plays in kind of these larger community conversations and shifts. And for, for the listeners who, who didn't know me about 10 years ago, uh, Fourth Wall was this art gallery space in Fenway that Bodega had started. And I ended up becoming the gallery director with a, uh, a paltry, tiny, uh, well, non-existent background in running art spaces. So it turned it basically into this nebulous uh, space that I just tr was trying to figure out how to impact culture at that time outside of uh, Bodega. And uh, that's where we crossed paths. And I totally don't even remember the, the, uh, the first thing we worked on. And I, it's coming back to me now that you brought it up. Cause I, now I remember it. And that's, that's great that you were able to uh, spark that memory in my mind. It was with Caleb Nealon. I remember yeah, yeah. it visually. Now that you're talking about it, I think I, I that's probably the first time I was at Fourth Wall. Is that possible? I remember coming to that show, so. 100%. So that was your first freelance project that you did, though? And it was like a client that large, uh, the Children's Museum? The Children's Hospital, yeah. That was one of our first clients. I did a couple of the first Friday events for the ICA in addition to the Children's Hospital work. And that project was all about how to bring some of their art therapy and kind of their arts program into the public in a way that didn't expect people to come to the hospital and get a, you know, introduction into that. And then from there, I, that was such a crazy launch pad that I didn't even realize, but I got a lot of different types of pop-up projects and other things that came out of that, that that was kind of when it's, you know, and in some ways, like it, it was very amorphous at the time. Like it wasn't, I wish I could be like, oh yeah. I'm like kind of HBS where you're like, this is my plan. I will conquer. But, you know, in, in the world that we occupy, it tends to be a little bit more organic how things come to life. What was going on in the scene that I guess you were drawing inspiration from? Because it seemed when we were talking outside, it was 
really, there was a lot of DIY things going on when we were both like forming our identities and our, our practices. So it's funny because like, I've been thinking a lot of that about that conversation that we had at the end of the book fair. And, you know, in some ways, like a lot of things haven't changed, but then other things have changed within the city of Boston. I think for me, and I feel like Randy, you obviously, I feel like we've had conversations about this in the past from like Alston skirt days. Cause I, at one point for three years worked for Randy at Alston skirt It's just, there's not a lot of room for practice and play and like rehearsing in Boston. The culture is very like cemented in kind of like the final product. I don't know if it's cause we're such like, you know, academia kind of runs through and through every corner of this expansive place. But I think that for me, I just thought that there was a lot of rigidity, rigidity to like creative practice in addition to like, what is the design sector doing? What are the creative arts doing? What are these institutions doing? And like, it felt like everything was super siloed. And I was just really interested in thinking about ways that it could be a little bit more collaborative and that it wasn't this scarcity mindset that by us doing a project in this capacity, we were taking away an opportunity from somebody else. So I think that that was the energy that kind of was the origin of IP was just like, how can we bring ideas to the table and make things happen that are not within the confines of a museum or a gallery space or, you know, kind of a traditional event experience. Yeah. I mean, I think you really change the kind of the model of how your projects get financed. I mean, you do something that's really, really different. So do you all are than the traditional, you know, patron of the arts, collector of the arts, somebody walking in, you know, the trustee, whatever, that kind of relationship. Both of you guys are really embedded in the commercial world and a little bit of a different approach to supporting artists. Yeah, I think it's interesting, though, because I think in the early days, there was a lot of education and hurdles in this space because we would have artists that we'd want to work on something that was public and maybe funded through private development or through an institution, a large named institution. And they felt like it was, you know, selling out or that was like, you know, we all know the trope. But, you know, simultaneously, they would take an opportunity at a museum that was funded by the same individuals with very little uh, pay without even considering it. So it's interesting, like that perception versus reality, you know, 11 years ago, I feel like that's shifted a little bit and people are starting to think about what does it mean for them to have a creative practice and, you know, what are... I don't know. I just don't know if this generation thinks about selling out in the same way. I think that they think about them, their personal brands and these other things in different capacities. But I, I don't know. I'm curious, Oliver, like, what's your reaction? Do you hear young people talking about selling out anymore? Uh, no, nah, it's I think our generation was the last one to worry about that, about the the evils of commercialization as like some way of, you know, um, turning art or the self as impure next generation doesn't really represent that it's kind of a natural progression of there not being monetary opportunity so everyone has to sell out to the the previous uh definition of sellout is now the current mode of aspiration like you have to do that to pay these insane rents you have to work with brands and actually there's positives of it. Um, you know, people like myself and my contemporaries have uh, figured out that way of not diluting 
your your authentic self, but also navigating the brand space. And that only became came about because people like you and I became the stakeholders in those brands, the decision makers. So it's like a natural evolution. But I, I think like five years ago, I was like, I thought to myself, ah, oh, it's been a long time since I've heard anybody worried about being called a sellout. The last person who called me the sellout was actually DJ Paul Foley. I think I was using Serato, like uh, the computer DJing thing. And he, he, we had both been on vinyl for so long. He was still doing vinyl and he, he saw me doing uh, a Serato and was like, man, you a sellout. <laughs> I think he meant it with love because he's... <laughs> He's full of love. Did you call him a Luddite? No, I agree with him. I actually <laughs> still, I, w- I went back to just playing vinyl so that I could not look at a screen. And also so I could claim I didn't have the newest Beyonce album because I literally didn't bring the record. But it feels like I'm one of those uh, historical reenactors. Like the guy dressed up as Ben Franklin by the graveyard. But i'm doing with turntables i don't know it's really it's just it's a different world in a lot of these ways but there's a lot of good stuff about it i bet there is an education process with a lot of uh, commercial corporations whatever that you work with though i don't know some some companies just seem like they're so creative and really appreciate what like artist creativity brings to the world and has i mean we really appreciate like book fair sponsors who can appreciate that and support it without a lot of questions asked. But anyways, I can imagine that's a learning curve for some people. Well, let's, uh, let's focus on what we just were talking about. What is the model of how you, how do you bring funding to the arts and connect everything together? What do you, what do you do? It's, it's hard to say because every project's a little different, but I mean, you know, I think that it's weird to say this because I don't see myself as a capitalist I feel like this is the the easiest way for me to get stuff done. But at the same time, it's sort of like, I'm, I don't know, like, I, but being a nonprofit and also participating in a lot of nonprofits, you know, I see the challenges that come from that too. And I think that for us, we, we really did look inside ourselves at one point and be like, or should we be a nonprofit? And then I think we just realized that um, we had a lot more flexibility and nimbleness in addition to thinking about, you know, if we're going to be championing artists and creators on what their value is, then we should be able to also get paid a living wage and be able to prosper and live in a city. So, you know, for us, all of our projects are funded either through, um, you know, we do a lot of work with the state. We do a lot of work with different municipalities. We work with some, you know, major institutions and colleges in addition to some private development. We also work with some creative orgs and all of those projects are, you know, obviously we bill out of, you know, we do some nonprofit and pro bono work, which is billed at a different rate, but you know, as you might assume, but that's, that's, it's pretty straightforward. And I think for us, our big thing is like, we don't mark up the small businesses, the artists, the creators, any of their work. So it's not like a traditional, like agency model where we're getting compensated on their backs. It's kind of all very open and transparent on what, are, you know, how we get paid and how they get paid. 
Can you say more about that? Am I? Not, I mean, I'm sure I'm like either naive or ignorant or something. But so, do you sell their work? Do they get fees in most cases? Do they are they commissioned for work in other kind of cases? So a perfect, I'll just back up. So for example, is if we're working on a public art plan for a space, you know, maybe let's say it's for an institution, then we'll kind of decide that there's four or five different opportunities on the site, and then from there we'll work with um, the team of consultants or whoever's on the project to determine what are some of the mission, like future mission of the site. So to make sure that we're bringing in the right types of concepts and artists into it. Um, And then from there, we build out a budget and then we commission work directly from artists. And then we project manage and permit and get all the lifts and do all that kind of thing. If it's, if it's a public art project, it's all, every project's a little different, but yeah, that's kind of how it's like the most basic way to describe it. But it is pretty common that some groups will just, they'll take a percentage of the artist's fee. And that's a pretty common practice. It's just not our practice. That's cool. Do you work with the same artists over and over again? Or how do you, what's your, how do you uh, develop your pool of artists? It depends on the project. So for example, if we're working with, you know, sometimes, you know, we work with a lot of local artists, but then also we work with international artists too, depending on the scope and the opportunity that is presented in the project. When we worked on Studio Alston, we worked with 25 artists and I think 18 of them were within the New England region and the remaining were from all over the country. Um, And, you know, for us, our main thing is always trying to figure out ways to incorporate mediums, different mediums and different ideas into a project. Um, and making sure that we're not just hearing from one kind of visual voice, but that we're being really thoughtful about where we are and then the work that we're bringing in is representative of the landscape and um, the population. Damn. That's insane. I can't believe how many different artists you ended up using because that means you probably had to choose from a pool of, what, 200, 300 that you were considering? Yeah, and then it's hard sometimes because you you know, you know don't want to be like, this is our paint palette, and you show it to your client. They're like, we like these, and you're like, well, you can't just like those because <laughs> they all look the same. So, you know, I mean, not that that was the case with that particular project, but that does come up sometimes, and sometimes we have to fight for it, and I think that... Um, you know, in one vein, we're simultaneously trying to do right by the overarching project, but we also get, we're, you know, we're eager to work with certain people. So it comes into play. That makes a lot of sense. And it's, uh, yeah. How long is that type of process? Cause that, that space is gigantic. There's that's, you're working with so many different artists. How long does something like that take? I mean, for studio, that was like a two year project. But for like a lot of these campuses that we've been on, like it, you know, sometimes the pre-planning phase can be one to two years. And, you know, obviously we work on like the community org and nonprofit side too. It's not just public art. So we might be kind of fostering relationships and thinking about ways that we're going to bring in different partners to help activate a place in addition to the art components. And so, you know, like I said, we could be working on a pre-planning for two to three years. (laughs) Sometimes we're working on a project that on a place that doesn't even exist yet. And that's like really weird and fun, but kind of a head scratcher into, you know, when the project is like comes to life, that can be, you know, anywhere from two to eight years. We're on a project right now in Alston that's been eight years, but that's cool. Cause that one's more iterative. So we get to learn from how the public is directly interacting with the work and it, of like evolving what comes next from that. So does that come about by you 
presenting ideas and pitching to like potential like developers or institutions or have you gotten to the point where everyone's kissing the ring coming to you <laughs> at at uh you know at all hours uh you know bringing you flowers and s'mores trying to win your your audience I love that idea. So that would be great. Um, I think right now, like, so it's in the beginning, there was a lot of education. There wasn't a lot of understanding of value. And there was a lot of like, you know, I don't think it was like, I'm not trying to, you know, throw shade or anything like that. But like, I think that people just didn't understand. And they thought that like, especially doing things in public space was like a revenue driver for the businesses and the orgs and the artists that were involved, that they didn't really understand that that was like part of how they had to budget and how they think about this work. But I think obviously a lot has changed in the world and we're able to speak frankly to the needs of communities and the partners we work with in more long-term impactful ways. So I think that we're in a different place than we were 11 years ago. We are very choosy on the project we work on, we have to have mission alignment because we don't want to work on things that we don't think are working towards the betterment of the communities that they're going into or they're interacting with. So, I mean, I would say that like, we definitely go and like bring our wares around town, <laughs> like, you know, try to win the hearts and minds of people that we admire and want to work with. But we also have opportunities that come our way because people like our work, which is always exciting and flattering. I tried doing what what you just described for a couple of years, like uh, putting together, you know, decks to get people to pay for, you know, public art projects. And it was, I, th I think in the deck was just like a case study of Tony Goldman and Miami's Wynwood walls. Yes. <laughs> and then the Houston wall in um, Soho, which he also started, which is just like this revolving yeah. art space that's really graffiti based. So everything I was doing was graffiti based. Um, but and it was all kind of inspired by that one dude. Was that before Bodega? That was like during Bodega with a fourth wall. So we were trying to, but I, I guess I was doing some freelance stuff on the street like before that early 2000. It was a wild west. What's crazy about that is that at that time, I helped Russell LaMontagne open his first gallery in Boston. And Tony Goldman was our landlord at the Four Points space that we were at. And now that's the WeWork. I think that's getting converted into a lab. So full circle. Man, that's crazy. Yeah. Did you... Uh um, did you ever go to any of those artist uh, workspaces that also had raves in Fort Point? I think I saw big digits there. I'm I was probably there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's what. That was a huge inspiration for all the stuff I do too. Just like this, this thriving community of artists that would just do underground parties that were half art shows, half you know, just renegade loft parties. And my aspiration was to DJ them. I love that. And I remember going to many parties that you did DJ. Um, yeah, I think that, that, that you, you do bring up a really good point, which is that like, you know, I came out of like hardcore punk community. I didn't drink until I was 22. I wasn't like straight edge, but I didn't drink because none of my friends did. So like we were always trying to create, make weird things and like create events and kind of find ways to like entertain ourselves. And so I feel like that that kind of energy is something that I still carry with me and is still something that I'm 
constantly looking for like, and we talked about like, what is subculture now? And it's like so hard to find, but back then it was like such the, the goal was to like know things and be in the know and have like being all the nooks and crannies where cool stuff was happening. And your friends were like trying stuff. And I'm still, still trying to find another version of that at like my age now, which just feels hard to come by. Don't give up. <laughs> Well, it's because two lovely folks like you are creating things. So it helps when it's happening. No, and you too. I don't know where this impulse comes from. And we're definitely not alone, but to try to create that so that there, there is that something that's under the radar, something that's not what you expect. Whatever. I never was the party girl. That's why I like to hear all the details of this. I think I was young mom when you guys were were doing whatever you were doing, wherever you were doing it. So that's also a little bit of full circle looking at this. But but you were young mom and you were running your own art gallery yeah. in the city. That's not common. <laughs> I don't know. We called ourselves. We. I mean, Alston Skirt. That it's funny to think about. We called ourselves. Not MoMA, but Mama. Beth and I were both like moms of, of kids who were like in grade school when we opened the gallery. That's like a lot of work just in and of itself or something. But so I think we had people like Emily to be our scouts and our uh, representatives at the cool spots while we were home, like making peanut, uh, you know, peanut butter sandwiches or whatever, cutting up apples for lunches with the little ones. So both of you, both of you are fully woman run businesses, right? Yeah, totally. The best. That's interesting. Because that's really the best way to run a business, of course. <laughs> well, I mean, I two things I want to call out. One is that I feel like one of the things I loved about being at Alston Skirt with both of you over those years was that I felt like we had a lot of room for experimentation and we tried a lot of things and we were inspired by things. And so we'd find ways to like do something cool with the thing that we were ex excited about. And that's definitely something that has carried through my entire career. But so thank Thank you for that. You, you were a delight. <laughs> you brought a lot, <laughs> but you know, Randy, you've lived so many lives and it's continually insane to me how many chapters of different ways you've been interacting with arts and culture throughout your entire life. And, you know, it's, it's just wild to think about the formal sides of it. In addition to the experimental sides and kind of trying on all these hats do you feel sometimes that the formalization of art is aspirational or has confines? I don't know. That is a great question. I don't know how to answer it except on the very personal level. Like, I'm always surprised by my own limitations and also by the places where I can be really stubborn and really want to get something done. And I think whatever weird combination of of skills and lack of skills or training. It's just like water, you know, you, you find a way and it pops out where it's going to pop out. I, I have been, I think, really intuitive about what I've done, but so I don't know how to answer that at all. I find for myself personally, I've really strayed away from like a straight ahead art career with that has like a lot of academic elements, even though I love and admire that like beyond everything else. I think in another life, I hope like that's something I get to do more rigorously, but that turned out not to be me. So I think I'm always looking just for stuff that I think is interesting. And I've, I think I've been really lucky for the amazing people I run into creative energy. I've been able to like tap into. I mean, I, I really 
that's what I think. I don't know if that's an answer. I had to actually look up the word that you used because I didn't really understand that question. <laughs> and what'd you come up with? <laughs> I, I still don't understand the question. <laughs> but I liked your answer. And I like the way you asked the question. It was just way over my head. <laughs> well, I'm going to say, but one thing I think I also relate to with, with Emily, I hadn't really realized it until you said it, but when we started Alston Skirt, we also talked about being going nonprofit because I love to write. I'm not scared of writing for grants or doing that kind of fundraising. We, or at least I felt like my projects were unlikely to be super commercially viable. So I, I'm so glad we didn't. I mean, we didn't only because Beth was so skillful at like selling that artwork. I don't know how she did it. <laughs> I don't know how you do it, but it's a that's incredible. And that's such a different relationship with your audiences and with your artists and everything else. And I love it. And it and it kind of cuts through a layer of bureaucracy that it's really nice not to have to deal with in a business. I also I didn't realize that until in hindsight, like that, that what that sort of some of the implications of that choice. Yeah, Emily, do you feel like you have to do a lot of selling to the to clients? Uh, just selling an idea, selling a, of your your concepts, selling the artist. I think that the hardest part of it isn't necessarily selling the thing that they think they want. It's trying to push them beyond. I think for me, like we run into this thing a lot of times where people are excited about doing something that they've seen somewhere else. And I think for us, like we're really interested in figuring out how to solve the unique challenge of their site. And the solution to that should be unique. So I think that that's where the friction can lie sometimes. And also just like selfishly, like it's boring doing the same thing over and over again. So like we're constantly working on our practice while we're like doing work for our clients because we want to be able to do new things and try new things and have big hurdles and dreams that go beyond, you know, what people hire us to do. Like we just recently did a project in Boston where we took a gas station and turned it into like an active community space. And, you know, it was, it was a really fun project and we had an incredible team that we worked with on the client side and it was like hyper collaborative, but there was just a lot of times because it was something that like nobody in the project had done before that there was just a lot of like, is this the right thing? Should we do this? Should we do that? And like, I definitely felt at times that I was like, the one who had to believe the hardest mm. and that that's just something that maybe I've committed to at this point, but it is something that comes from like selling something that goes beyond people's immediate imagination. And I don't know if that answered your question, but so I guess it's like hard selling the things that you really are passionate about and want to do. And that's why it's like interesting. That's absolutely interesting because I think there's, you know, most of us have to do a lot of compromise. But was I think with what I've seen you output and what you're what you're creating, there's a lot of elements where you get you're truly a creative lead. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I love to push boundaries. They call me at ten ten Mass Ave a great person because I constantly am trying to pull permits that don't exist, <laughs> and I just try to be like super humble and kind when I'm there. But that's just a reality, and you know, I can. I've seen this within the both of you, but like the determination to win the thing that's impossible is like the most intoxicating feeling, and that's part of the reason I think I'm like addicted to doing really hard and 
almost borderline impossible things. And I think that sometimes I have to check myself because I want to make sure that I'm still servicing the needs of the project and not like letting my own, like, you know, self drive and ambition, like cloud the outcome. Let's talk more about 10. Ego death. (laughs) You want to talk about 10, 10 mass Ave? Permitting? <laughs> the permitting office? Just kind of a shout a co- out to that great place. I have to spend or have spent a lot of time there in my BCA years as well and have big fondness for it. So, no, let's go back to ego death. No, what's up? What's up with uh, what's up with 1010? Because it's got that crazy big like field where there's always some like crimey stuff going on. And then across from there is Blanc. <laughs> well, you know, Blanc. What? It's not there anymore, though. I don't know what happened, but like it used to be Blanc, and then last they like moved to New York. Yeah, they, they became a design duo. They were some young, a young gallery uh, trying to trying to do it. And we actually, I think we did a party there with G Shock. Yeah, we did. That was the last thing I was there for. Wait, where was that? Right there, or was that over? Was that over in that? It was like like a block, two blocks yeah. away from Ten Ten Mass Ave in the in like the warehouses there's like a liquor distillery and then a place where kitar bear would show up in raves <laughs> bully boy bully boy's over there which has got they have a, a beautiful space that you can actually go and have cocktails and flights of cocktails wow flights of cocktails yeah oh well they're like mini but i know that like the mayor's office of arts and culture is putting a lot of energy and effort into kind of thinking about the zoning of that whole area so that's kind of also interesting because that's happening directly across from 1010 mass ab and like two blocks from mass and cast so you know to be to be determined how everything shakes out yeah i don't know i mean 1010 mass ab is is th- there's nothing that will make you feel more humbled and brought down to your knees than when some white guy in stained khaki pants tells you that he's going on lunch and that he won't talk to you for a week. Um, I've had all of these things happen. That's a long lunch. Yeah. I also had to get a fisheries license, which I don't know if you know anything about this for a 25 day pop-up on Newbury street. And now there is a 10 year active fisheries license attached to a property that now I think is selling shoes. <laughs> Wait, I can't even a fisheries like, like you're canning tuna or something. We did a caviar pop-up with Island Creek and they didn't have the ability to give them a common Vic license. This is boring, but this is like <laughs> Not me, to the, me. Challenges, the challenges of permitting are yeah. like wildly complicated. And, you know, with Aeronaut and some of the other beer gardens we've done. I mean, it's just hilarious how they move the needle all the time and how it's like sometimes easier to get snakes on a property (laughs) than it is to get uh, dogs. So wait, you're the reason why we have beer gardens is basically what you just said. I will not take credit for that, but I will say that I have done some of the first beer gardens in Boston. We did one for, weirdly enough, when Marty Walsh came into office, um, he did, uh, he wanted to do one on City Hall Plaza. And you would think permitting that would be easy. But no. But, but no, <laughs> no it wasn't. <laughs> so you're the, you're the person who did that? <laughs> Yeah, but like we're on their own property and they were the client. So it's, I mean, you know, we have a sense of humor about it. I have a, I have a lot of friends at City Hall and, and we constantly lean into stuff with them and push each other. So only good vibes. I love it. That's amazing. 
No, it's, a, it's amazing that you're the reason why the, a lot of public spaces are now no longer piles of trash, <laughs> but they're actually where people like to hang out. I love that. I'm going to quote that somewhere. I have a client who wants to make us jackets, like varsity jackets that just say in all cursive on the back, Eisenberg Projects bringing people to places that they never wanted to go <laughs> since... 2012, 2011. And I think it's kind of true because it is a lot of these kind of like in between spaces that were kind of forgotten or underutilized. But that being said, when you walk around Boston, Cambridge, wherever, and you start to look at all these courtyards and all these footpaths on these buildings and that they're just like there and they serve no purpose and no function, it makes you crazy. And like, I think about it all the time. Like all the time, especially in all these like new buildings, we were just like, wait, what is that for? And why isn't there somebody doing something there? And like this land is like completely useless. I think we need a lot more beer gardens. So I would like really applaud your efforts in that. You also make me think of my favorite thing about New York right now is all the weird structures that people have built outside of all the restaurants. So you can sit outside. You love them so much. I like want to sit in every single one of them. Like I can't even walk by. It just looks like really fun to sit in every one of them. And I don't really know why we don't have as like charming and eclectic, like a bunch of outdoor huts or whatever those little spaces are called for people to enjoy their cocktails or their dinner or their hot dog or whatever. Did you see that awesome New York Magazine article that had all the pictures of all no. of the... Oh my God, I'll send you the article. It's so great. And like the little... It's like shantytown. Um, yeah. Yeah, the reason we don't have it is that we are very dedicated to cleanliness and safety in the city. Um, so I worked on a parklet, I think it was in 2017 on Newbury Street with uh, my friend Jacob Wessel, the city of Boston. And like the city actually, the way that they required it to be structured and designed made it incredibly cost prohibitive. And we did it because we had the the backing to do it. But it's just interesting to think about what the barrier to entry is, if that's how they require it. And obviously, we saw that happen this summer with kind of all the patio permits changing and what the Ballards were and the creations were. But yeah, it's it's just a, it's a safety precaution. It's a really boring one. It's not a really fun reason at all. And it makes you realize like how people could occupy pocket parks if there was more flexibility and fluidity and like language around it. But like, Hopefully with, you know, the mayor's initiatives in this regard, that will shift. And I do think I do have a lot of hope, but yes, there's a lot of space and I don't know why we don't have our own little shantytown villages. I thought it was because like the liquor lobby and the bar lobby is so strong and they're just trying to protect their turf and don't want more players in the game. (sighs) But if you go to any community meeting, Oliver, all people complain about is parking. So, and especially in the city that I think that the idea of taking away parking spaces for economic development, I don't know why people are still focused on the parking because at the end of the day, these small independent businesses are what gives our city culture and texture and energy. But I think that they're just focused on where they can park on Newbury Street. Maybe you can kill two birds with one stone by building some like shantytown of those elevator parking lot things where like where you have like seven parking lots, but they're vertical. And <laughs> I know. Right. But then you're down. Nobody. It's weird, too. Right. Because you want to be outside, but you're not outside. Like if you look at 
that article in the New York magazine. It's like so funny because some of them actually have like air conditioning <laughs> systems in the little like wooden structure, but they're outside. And you're like, how is that working from a COVID ventilation standpoint? Those wouldn't be my favorite ones. I like the ones that definitely look like you're outside. I like the ones that actually look like shanties. And it could be a shanty and you're not sure if you're going into someone's home <laughs> or if it's a dining area. <laughs> I love it. Um, what about, don't you have the igloos at the BCA? What igloos? No. For some reason, I thought there was igloos outside the BCA last year. No. Was that part of one of the restaurants, I guess? Maybe. Maybe. There was igloos at the Cape, at a, just at one restaurant I can think of, if that's what you're talking about. I never went in one. That actually did look kind of COVID unfriendly, the igloo idea. <laughs> well, yeah, like shared air. Maybe Banyan or uh I don't remember an igloo i've had it i don't know i'll have to look into it but th that's not where that's not where we're getting at we like the handmade funky ones <laughs> that were made out of police barricades <laughs> some netting uh exactly carburetor lights uh, like lights yeah. little spark the little light things it looks like a sculpture by swoon <laughs> oh yeah that would be amazing let's do it we're working on a design competition right now with uh high school students that's gonna like we're going to release more information on this soon for a, like a, a retail kiosk that will live in the seaport. So maybe we could think of other ways to do design competitions for these little huts that could be more for public use. It just gets tricky because then the part is, is like, are we going to like, I'm always kind of like, okay, so we're going to do really cool things in our parks, but like, are we going to make sure that there's people who are experiencing houselessness have showers not to go there, but like, it is kind of like this funny thing where we think about how structures support public use but then what public mm. are they supporting hey it's not your problem to solve you gotta make that igloo look fancy right <laughs> don't worry about the shower yeah <laughs> Someone I mean, else. That, let michelle will worry about the shower that's Damn, that's fair that's fair i wish i could just pull you out of a little like you could just sit in my pocket and i can pull you out when those moments come because it is a constant thing that comes up and we're like oh no you got to be careful that's oliver devil in your ear oliver because i think I agree that maybe putting that energy into some cool showers might equally be very cool and serve maybe a better purpose. I can see that. But yeah, we don't bathe enough in our culture. There's like, there's no public baths at all. Really. <laughs> and if they are, we do have public baths. They're either Korean or Turkish. So it's not really an American public bath. All right. There's a project for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you guys have either of you been in J Japan? They ha they have things these hot springs called onsen, and you'd spend like two days just in a spa where it's just taking baths for like two days and just drinking and eating. That sounds great. I don't know if I like to drink or eat while in a bath, but that's just me personally. No, so you could do the eating outside of the bath. Is it nice? I'm also a little skeevy about the like public bathing thing. Just <laughs> well, that's the reason why Emily's not working on I'm too American. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's pivot here for a second cuz when you talk about this project for high school kids, that's super awesome. Also something that we've had a tiny little bit of experience with at the um at the Boston Art Book Fair, like our 2019 fair had like a project with kids that was really really Super cool. So that feels so good. Anyway, is that something that you guys do a lot of? 
Well, I feel like you just teed me up to do a PSA, but I'm going to do my best. Um, So we just launched our 2023 applications for our Make It Happen residency program. And we did this last year and we ended up working. So basically the residency program, just to give you some clarification, is that we work with different creative orgs. Um, We get a series of applications. We choose one. Last year, we chose two. And we donate, I think, roughly around 60 to 70 hours of agency time to help them solve a unique problem. And so last year, we worked with uh, two youth groups. Uh, We worked with Future Chefs, which is an amazing um, organization that's based in Roxbury that teaches uh, post-high school students how to kind of cook, what back of house, front of house looks like, and kind of learning um, kind of vocationally about like the economics of food and and kind of all of that, which was incredible. And then we also worked with Youth Pride, which is based in Rhode Island. And I think that it really unlocked some stuff for us because we had to kind of introduce new ways of collaboration with youth and giving them the tools and the language to be able to give us feedback and be able to show up as their whole selves. Um, And so that was something that like unlocked a lot of things for us as a company. And it's something that we have been really leaning into over the last year, um, we recently did a project for Roxbury Youth programs where we helped them do a redesign and we worked directly with their youth to come up with the design and kind of teaching them a little bit about that discovery process and what that means. And it's not just about things looking cool, but the intentionality and all of the thought that goes into that stuff. And that was very, very fun. So long answer, short question, but um, I think that this, this project that I, I, it's still kind of in the works right now, but, um, is, you know, working with a lot of outside organizations that are going to be leaning on their youth to kind of, kind of work through this like syllabus in that capacity and us co-creating that with a lot of different groups is something we're really excited and energized by. Um, because obviously we're not like design architecture, uh, you know, professors, that's not our skill set. but we're working with folks that are helping us through that. But yeah, I think it's something I'm more interested in long-term because I think that part of what I'm learning is, is the more people we give the tools to think about how they interact with the world, the more people that will have the capacity to kind of engage in broader ways. If you don't see it, then you don't know it exists. That's something I truly believe. So that's something that like is still an early stage piece of some stuff we're doing, but I'm excited about it. Yeah. That sounds amazing. That sounds really cool. I I wouldn't even be able to begin to think about how you would go about doing half the stuff you just mentioned. It's it's just like, I I was telling Randy, I just, I I can't even successfully have an intern. (laughs) Like one, one person that I'm supposed to like design their time for, you know, it's just like, it's a mess. Where do you get stuck? Uh, I'm too busy doing other stuff to really think about the program. Yeah. It's hard to say. I don't, I'm, you know, I'm in the fortunate spot right now that I don't directly manage like a lot of things. I sort of get to focus on ideas, which I think you're kind of in a similar spot. So hopefully other people within your organization are able to, encourage interns and participate in that capacity. And I don't know if that's necessarily anything that like, I think it's cool. Cause I feel like in some ways we're getting to occupy in the way that we want to be occupying. Oh, the other reason why I'm bad is cause I don't care enough for them. <laughs> and I don't care. I'm, I'm so selfish. I'm like, I just, I don't, I don't want to spend my time on you. Well, what did I do? Agree to this. What did I do? Yeah. Do you think like, of anyone as a mentor in your history? How do like, 
Who opened a door for you, Oliver? Me? Why, why are you asking me? I'm not the guest. <laughs> I want to know, though. I want to know. <laughs> we want to know. I don't think I had a mentor, and I really should have had one because <laughs> I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have been in the wilderness with my butt out, um, just like try, making every mistake possible. Uh, my partners are definitely like fully the people who, who made all the things that I do uh, real and with Bodega. But before that, I was just, something's good here. Let's check it out. Pro Black over at ALA, uh, Artists for Humanity, uh, opened the door for me and, and like um, helped me out and helped me meet a lot of people. But that was only like a couple of days. So I kind of ran. I have this really terrible um, habit of just like charging head, head first into things without really uh, understanding it and figuring it out along the way. What about you, Emily? Who's your mentor? I don't know. I feel like this is a challenging and triggery question because... My background, my, well, cause my background is like very non-traditional in the sense that like, I, you know, had, I was like emancipated. There's like a lot of stuff that happened in my life to like, make me feel like uh, fearless. So I think that some of that is just kind of in my, in my blood. Um, but you know, yeah, I think that I've taken so much inspiration from so many people and the reality is I've really only had female bosses my most of my life. And so I think that that's also been like a big piece of it is just finding other women that inspire me and kind of can forge new versions of what it what a life can look like. Cause I think when you're growing up, you only see a couple different types of examples of like what a trajectory of like a career can look like as a woman. I know that's really crazy to say, but I think it's still true. It feels like we should be on that, but it's still kind of a murky place of what those compromises look like. But yeah, I don't know, Oliver, it's interesting to me. Cause I feel like you are, you've always been like kind of understated about your, like how you got started. And I know we're not that's not, I don't know. I just think it's interesting because I feel like one of the first times you told me about Bodega and what you were doing, you're, it was always so casual. And I just can't, I would love to some point catch up with you and hear like how all those pieces came together because I do think it's like pretty wild to think about that casual energy and then what what kind of beast you you all are are running today. We're out there. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's definitely, uh, uh, some of all the parts it's, I mean, I helped start it, but the, the people, you know, the, the 80 other people who are in the company are just, I, I work to serve their work at this point. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of just, uh, there to facilitate. They, they got, they got it going on, but, um, yeah, it's, it was pretty strange going from uh, having like zero dollars in the bank account holes in all my shoes to like launching Bodega. And the times in between was just a lot of freewheeling like Bob Dylan. It was crazy. <laughs> uh, and I feel bad that the next generation won't have that opportunity to just be totally uh, un untethered, totally insane, experiment, learn everything possible by trying 70 different freelance jobs all at once and throwing a party at night uh, when you're done with whatever emails you had to do. So what do you think stopping that generation? It's not opportunity. We used to have, uh, you know, you need patrons to pay for stuff uh, unless unless you're uh, passing the hat for a 30 rack. Mm -hmm. So it's like uh, back in our day, we used to have fun people like Scion put, uh, paying for B-boys to get together and DJ in a club or in a loft or Red Stripe was coming through um, my connections at Cornerstone. Uh, 
or, uh, you know, alcohol brands were uh, sponsoring things in our market. Um, HBO was doing film screenings. I did one with Playboy at Randy's Gallery. Really? At the Mills. Yeah, it was for like some <laughs> cell phone company way back in like <laughs> oh 2007. Um, yo, there was people throwing money at, you know, events marketing. And there, that doesn't happen anymore because it's also based on trying to get an influencer to show up and then go viral off of a lot going live. So that only happens. It's only New York, or LA. Yeah, that's so interesting. So they don't come to the small markets anymore with money. Yeah, that that is interesting. I do. I sort of feel a little bit like I'm like one of the last men standing when it comes to influencers. Like I get it. I understand it. Like we've definitely worked with them. I see what the effect is, but it's still just like so strange to me. And I think it also speaks to another thing that sounds like an antiquated thing to say, but I feel like we just like had too much shame around that level of self-promotion. That's also a generational thing. Like I think it had to be understated and it had to be kind of brought out in a way that you like knew a secret about somebody and that was cool. Or like you had a cool vintage shirt that you found and only the cool people knew that it was like reference this thing. And it's just a different world in the sense that like taking a selfie is just something that like a generation, you know, below us is super accustomed to, and they know how to do it. And it's part of just like the way they communicate with each other. But for me and for a lot of my friends and my contemporaries, it's just very bizarre to be like that shameless. Well, that's why you also have a good fit with things that are going to be there for a long time. Real estate, uh, place making institutions. That's where, that's where you found your sweet spot. Like the, the things that I was doing was ephemeral. It was like one-off events. Um, that's where the funding was for my projects when I was, uh, trying to figure out. And, um, that stuff is all, I mean, it's, it's in lockstep with social media and influencers. If it's a one night party, you want it to splash. But uh, if you want it to be, you know, if you want to change a community, it's got to last and have real design thought behind it, real process behind it. So kudos to you for making things that last. I mean, I think it's insightful and wise and all that, but I'm also going to say just, I think there's still lots of people who are really compelled to to be different than whatever, just than whatever they want to be different from. Those people are still going to make a difference. Like, I'm a, I'm hopeful. I mean, I have a, a young woman who works with me who is part of this group called All You Can Eat, and they're doing all sorts of collaborative, fun kind of parties and trying to speak to a younger, uh, you know, youth population in the city that doesn't feel like the club scene speaks to them and these other things. And I do think there is like uh, I'm seeing this happen a lot, and even some of the folks I've just been running across where people are trying to think about what nightlife, the future of nightlife is, and if it's not solely focused on alcohol, like what is it focused on and how do people connect? And I think we're, I'm I'm curious to see what happens. Like, I think we're still kind of coming out of the pandemic and still waiting to see what these kind of new rituals are going to look like. And I do think that there will be some surprises and some twists and turns. It's just, yeah, as far as the funding models go, that is a great question. And, and, and I don't have, you know, a hypothesis at this time. My hypothesis is sneakers. (laughs) (laughs) because uh, you, you you just mentioned all you could eat. We brought them to Paris. Young Tofu, of all, the founder of All You Could Eat, we brought him to Paris for New Balance. No way. And then I was just in a video 
project f- with Young Tofu for Nike, and that that had uh, I think Malachi was there or yeah. Yeah, a bunch of other people, but uh, is the so it's Jenny. Jenny works here. Yeah. 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 All right. Cool. So there, that's the answer. Wait to to go back to like uh, our conversation after the Boston Harbor Fair. Who's the next generation coming up? It's all you can eat crew. I think it's just like you know, kind of thinking about what is the future of creative collaboration. I mean, also Digital Soup. I know they did a project with you all. Like, I think that some of the th- the problems that they're trying to solve is speaking to some of the gaps in you know the existence of arts and culture and how people gather. Yeah, I don't know. I'm really curious about. About it and it's also it's funny because like how do you actively participate in it because now like look at randy we started this with you being a young mom like now here we are you know oscars oscar oliver my god oliver that's my brother's name is it really yeah that's so funny that's confusing um, yeah um and oliver you're now a parent and you know i'm a step parent and so it's like how do we at this generation participate in this stuff too and what are you know there's just different needs i guess i think we just keep the door open for the next generation and make it facilitate and uh keep spreading the vi- spreading the, the knowledge spreading resources that's all we can do because i can't my bedtime's like nine days, <laughs> so i can't i can't even go to your party because i'm like putting i'm putting a baby down with my wife yeah but you can intro all the people to make the party and that's that's the value yo uh tofu you're welcome for hooking you up with that dim sum party that's gonna pay you guap by the way if you're listening to this to young tofu that's the third thing that i reworked on tofu with this year wow that was that was the, the alley that was from another woman led crew uh Alyssa over at the sh- uh the the Speedway's sake bar. Yeah, Alyssa's a good friend of mine. I love Alyssa. Yeah, so she was trying to connect me and I couldn't do it. So tofu and all you can eat is going to do it. It's like some dim sum party. Oh, that's so cool. Well, I'll go to that because that's close to my house. So proximity is important too, apparently. But I think there's a great, there's this awesome wave of uh, woman-led hospitality um, businesses coming up as well. Yeah, and unapologetic in a way that's really refreshing. That's what that's what we need these days. That's where that's where you got to come from to uh, not sell out. <laughs> you need to be mission driven and mission aligned. Yeah, I just I actually only wrote our mission like a, two years ago because I was like, wait, we don't have one of these. <laughs> How did that go? Is that a fun process for you? A lot of plagiarism. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I'd be stealing. I'd be rhyming and stealing. Noted. <laughs> Oh yeah. If you, if you see some stuff that matches your, uh, <laughs> mission statement that's on your website, that was me. <laughs> oh, well, I love to pay it forward. So if there's anything I did that could help anytime <laughs> steal away, that's how you got to come at it. That's that we all have to share what we know so that the community can grow. And on that note, Emily, it's so nice to get to talk to you. Um, this was a total treat. What a great way for me to kind of close out my week. And I hope that I get to see both of you in person or via Zoom very soon. I agree. I think in person at an unfashionably early outdoor drink, <laughs> if somebody can find a cute shack for us to meet at. With a nice like heating situation. Okay, perfect. <laughs> I'll see you at the igloo. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you.